0: book one chapter seven of strangers and pilgrims by mary elizabeth braddon this is a librivox recording all librivox recordings are in the public domain for more information or to volunteer please visit LibriVox.org. strangers and pilgrims chapter seven je ne voudrais pas si j'étais jolie n'être que jolie avec ma beauté jusqu'au bout des doigts je serais duchesse Comme ma richesse j'aurais ma fieté elizabeth having in a manner pledged herself to a career of worldly-mindedness to begin in the ensuing spring deemed herself at liberty to follow her own inclinations in the interim and these inclinations pointed to the kind of life which malcolm Ford wished her to lead she went back to her district work on the morning after the curate's visit put on her puritan hat and sober grey carmelite gown which seemed to her mind the whole armour of righteousness, and went back to her people. She was welcomed back with an affection that at once surprised and touched her. She had done so little for them, only treating them and thinking of them as creatures of the same nature as herself, and yet they were so grateful and so fond of her. So Elizabeth went back to what Gertrude called her duties, and the soul of Aunt Chevenix was heavy within her. That lady had cherished high hopes upon the subject of this lovely niece of hers. A perfect beauty in a family is a fortune in embryo. There was no knowing what transcendent heights upon the vast mountain range of good society such a girl as Elizabeth might scale, dragging her kith and kin upwards with her, provided she were but plastic in the hands of good advisers. To scheme, to plan, to diplomatise were natural operations of the Chevenix mind a childless widow with a comfortable income and a somewhat extended circle of acquaintance could hardly spend all her existence with no more mental pabulum than a fan and a scent-bottle and the trivial amenities of polite life mrs chevenix's intellect must have lapsed into stagnation but for the agreeable employment afforded by social diplomacy she knew everything about everybody kept a mental ledger in which she registered all the little weaknesses of her acquaintance and had even a journal wherein a good deal of genteel scandal was booked in pen and ink but although by no means essentially good-natured she was not a mischief-maker and no unfriendly criticism or ladylike scandal had ever been brought home to her she was on the other hand renowned as a peacemaker and if she had a fault it was a species of amiable officiousness which some of her acquaintance were inwardly inclined to resent malign tongues had called mrs chevenix a busybody but in the general opinion she was a lady of vivacious and agreeable manners who gave snug little dinners and elegant little suppers after concerts and operas and was a fine figure for garden parties or a spare seat at the dinner table a lady who had done some good service in the way of matchmaking and who exercised considerable influence over the minds of divers young matrons whom she had assisted in the achievement of their matrimonial successes it seemed a hard thing that after having been so useful an ally to various damsels who were only the protégés of the hour mrs chevenix's diplomatic efforts in relation to her own nieces should result in utter failure she had never hoped very much from gertrude who had that air of being too good for this world which of all things is the most repellent to sinful man still even for gertrude mrs chevenix had done her best bravely and with the sublime patience engendered by profound experience of this mundane sphere its difficulties and disappointments she had exhibited her seriously-minded niece at charity bazaars at dejeuners given after the inauguration of church organs at choir festivals and even with a noble sacrifice of personal inclination at sunday-school tea-drinkings orphanage fêtes, and other assemblages of what this worldly-minded matron called the goody-goody school she had angled for popular preachers for rectors and vicars the value of whose benefices she had looked up in the clergy list but she had cast her lines in vain. The popular preachers crying from their pulpits that all is vanity were yet caught moth-like by the flame of worldly beauties and left Gertrude to console herself with the calm contemplation of her own virtues and the conviction that they were somewhat too lofty for the appreciation of vulgar clay. It had happened thus that with the advent of Malcolm Ford the eldest miss luttrell fancied she had at last met the elect and privileged individual predestined to sympathise with and understand her the man upon whose broad forehead she at once recognised the apostolic grace and who she fondly hoped would hail in her the typical maiden of the church primitive and undefiled the dorcas or lydia of modern civilization. it had been a somewhat bitter disappointment therefore To discover that mr ford although prompt with the bestowal of his confidence and friendship was very slow to exhibit any token of a warmer regard surely he so different in every attribute from all former curates was not going to resemble them in their foolish worship at the shrine of elizabeth so long as this damsel had stuck to her accustomed line of worldliness gertrude had scarcely trembled but when her younger sister all of a sudden subdued her somewhat reckless spirit and took to district visiting, Miss Luttrell's heart sank within her. She had no belief in the reality of this conversion. It was a glaring and bold-faced attempt at the curate's subjugation, to bend that stiff neck beneath the yoke which had been worn so patiently by the flute-playing, verse-quoting Levites of the past and Gertrude did not hesitate to express herself in somewhat bitter phrases to that effect. When Diana came to Eaton Place for the season, the hopes of Aunt Chevenix rose higher. The second Miss Luttrell was decidedly handsome in the aquiline nose style, and was as decidedly stylish, wore her country-made gowns with an air which made them pass for the handicraft of a West End Mantua maker, dressed her own hair with a skill which would have done credit to an experienced lady's maid, and seemed altogether an advantageous young person for whom to labour. Yet Diana's season, though brightened by many a hopeful ray, had been barren of results. Perhaps these girls in their aunt's house were too obviously on view. Mrs. Chevenix's renown as a matchmaker may have gone against them. Her past successes may have induced this present failure and if gertrude erred on the side of piety diana possibly went a thought too far in the matter of worldliness she was clever and imitative and caught up in the manners of more experienced damsel with a readiness that was perhaps too ready she had perhaps a trifle too much confidence in herself too much of the veni vidi vici style went into battle with an opera-box and a house in Hyde Park Gardens blazoned on her banner, and after suffering the fitful fever of high hopes that alternate with blank despair, Diana was fain to go back to Hawley Vicarage without being able to boast of any definite offer. But with Elizabeth, Mrs. Cheveny told herself, things would be utterly different. She possessed that rare beauty which always commands attention she was as perfect in her line as those heaven-born winners of the derby oaks and ledger which by their performances as two-year-olds proclaimed themselves at once the conquerors of the coming year fairly good-looking girls were abundant enough every season just as fairly good horses abound at every sale of yearlings throughout the sporting year but there was as much difference between elizabeth luttrell and the common herd of pretty girls or more or less dependent on the style of their bonnets or the dressing of their hair for their good looks, as between the fifty-guinea colt, whose good points excite vague hopes of future merit in the breast of the speculative buyer, and a lordling of a cracked stable, with a pedigree half a yard long, knocked down for two or three thousand guineas to some magnate of the turf amidst the applause of the auction yard elizabeth cannot fail to marry well unless she behaves like an idiot and throws herself away on some pauper curate said mrs chevenix there is no position to which a girl with her advantages may not aspire and i shall make it my business to give her plenty of opportunities unless she is obstinately bent upon standing in her own light this district visiting business must be put a stop to immediately It is nothing more than an excuse for flirting with that tall curate. Mrs. Cheveny was not slow to warn her brother, the vicar, of this peril, which menaced his handsomest daughter. But he, who was the easiest-tempered and least designing of mankind, received her information with a provoking coolness. I really can't see how I could object to Lizzie's visiting the poor, he said, It has always been a trouble to me that my daughters with the exception of gertrude have done so little if ford has brought about a better state of things in this matter as he has in a good deal besides i don't see that i can complain of the improvement because it's his doing and i don't think you need alarm yourself with regard to any danger of love-making or matrimony between those two ford has somewhat advanced notions and doesn't approve of a priest marrying he's almost said as much in the pulpit and i think the hawley girls have left off setting their caps at him men are not always constant in their opinions said mrs Chevenix. i wouldn't give much for any declaration mr ford may have made in the pulpit It was very bad taste in him to advance any opinion of that kind, I think, when his vicar is a married man and a father of a family. Ford belongs to the new school, replied Mr. Luttrell, with his good-natured air. Perhaps he sometimes sails a trifle too near the wind in the matter of asceticism, but he's the best curate I ever had. (laughs) Why doesn't he go over to Rome and have done with it? exclaimed aunt chevenix angrily i have no patience with such a wolf in sheep's clothing and i have no patience with you wilmot when i see your handsomest daughter throwing herself away before your eyes but i don't see anything of the kind maria said the vicar gently rolling his fingers round a cigar which he meant to smoke in the orchard as soon as he could escape from his tormentor as to playing the spy upon my children watching their flirtations with jones or speculating upon their penchant for robinson i think you ought to know by this time that i am the very last of men to do anything of that kind which means in plain english that you are too selfish and too indifferent to trouble yourself about the fate of your daughters you ought to have had sons Wilmot young scapegraces who would have ruined you with university debts or gone on the turf and dragged your name through the mire in that way i have not been blessed with sons murmured mr luttrell in his laziest tone if i had been favoured in that way so soon as they arrived at an eligible age i should have exported them i should have obtained a government grant of land in australia or british columbia and planted them out. I consider emigration the natural channel for the disposal of surplus sons. Oh, you ought never to have married, Wilmot. You ought to have been one of those dreadful abbots one reads of, who had trout-streams running through their kitchens, and devoted all the strength of their minds to eating and drinking, and actually wallowed in venison and larded capons." those ancient abbots had by no means a bad time of it my dear replied the vicar with supreme good humour and they had plenty of broken victuals to feed their poor with which i have not i want to know what you are going to do about elizabeth said mrs chevenix wrapping the table with her fan and returning to the charge in a determined manner what i am going to do about elizabeth my love simply nothing would you have me lock her up in the norman tower like a princess in a fairy tale so that she should not behold the face of man till i chose to introduce her to a husband of my own selection all the legendary law we possess tends to show the futility of that sort of domestic tyranny i consider your apprehensions altogether premature and groundless but if it is lizzie's destiny to marry malcolm ford i shall not interfere he is a very good fellow and he has some private means sufficient at any rate for the maintenance of a wife what more could i want and you would sacrifice such a girl as elizabeth to a scotch curate said mrs chevenix with the calmness of despair i always thought that you were the most short-sighted of mortals but i did not believe you capable of such egregious folly as this that girl might be a duchess find me a duke my dear maria and i will not object to him for my son-in-law mrs chevenix sighed and shook her head with a despondent air and mr luttrell strolled out to the orchard leaving her to bewail his folly in a confidential converse with diana who in a manner represented the worldly wisdom of the family i wouldn't make such a fuss about lizzie if i were you auntie that young lady remarked somewhat coolly i never knew a girl about whom her people made too much fuss setting her up as a beauty and so on do anything wonderful in the way of marriage like the eyes of the lynx in his matchless strength of vision were the eyes of aunt chevenix for any sentimental converse between elizabeth and mr Ford? it tortured her to know that they must needs have many opportunities of meeting outside the range of that keen vision chance encounters in the cottages of the poor or in the obscure lanes and alleys that fringed the chief street of hawley vainly had she endeavoured to cajole her niece into the abandonment of those duties she had newly resumed all her arguments her flatteries her ridicule her little offerings of ribbons and laces and small trinketry were wasted after that visit of malcolm ford's the girl was constant to her work it is such a happiness to feel that i can be of some use in the world auntie she said unconsciously repeating mr ford's very words and if you'd seen how pleased those poor souls were to see me amongst them again "'You would hardly wonder at my liking the work.' "'A tribe of sycophants!' exclaimed Mrs. Chevenix contemptuously. "'I should like to know what value they'd attach to your visits, "'or how much civility they'd show you, "'if there were not tea and sugar and coals and blankets in the background. "'And I should like to know how long you'd stick to your work "'if Mr. Ford had left Hawley.' Elizabeth flamed crimson at this accusation, but was not of a temper to be silenced by a hundred chevneys. Perhaps I might not like the work without his approval, she said defiantly, but I hope I should go on with it all the same. I am not at all afraid to confess that his influence first set me thinking that it was to please him I first tried to be good. I am not an ultra-religious person, Elizabeth. ''But I should call that setting the creature above the creator,'' said Mrs. Chevenix severely, to which Lizzie muttered something that sounded like bosh. ''What else is there for me to do, I should like to know?'' The girl demanded contemptuously, after an interval of silence, Mrs. Chevenix, having retired within herself in a dignified sulkiness. ''Is there any amusement or any excitement?'' Or any distraction in our life in this place to hinder my devoting myself to these people this speech was somewhat reassuring to mrs Chevenix. she inferred therefrom that if elizabeth had had anything more agreeable to do she would not have become a district visitor you have a fine voice which you might cultivate to your future profit she said a girl who sings really well is likely to make a great success in society Oh, i understand one gets asked out to entertain other people's friends and one is not paid like a professional singer i like music well enough aunt but you can't imagine i could spend half my existence in screeching solfeggi even if papa would tolerate the noise i'm sure what with one and another of us the piano is jingling and clattering all day as it is and the servants must execrate the sound of it blanche with her etudes de vélocité, and die with her everlasting fugues and sonatas it's something abominable you might have a piano in your tower bedroom my dear i wouldn't mind making you a present of a cottage thanks auntie let it be a real cottage then instead of a cottage piano (laughs) "'against I set up that love in a cottage that you seem so much afraid of.' "'Upon my word, Elizabeth, I can never make you out,' said Mrs. Chevenix plaintively. "'Sometimes I think you are a really sensible girl, "'and at other times you really appear capable of any absurdity.' "'Don't be frightened, Auntie. "'It rather amuses me to see your awe-stricken look "'when I say anything particularly wild.' But you need have no misgivings about me. I am worldly-minded to the tips of my nails, as the French say, and I am perfectly aware that I am rather good-looking, and ought to make an advantageous marriage. Only the eligible suitor is a long time appearing. Perhaps I shall meet him next spring in Eaton Place. And as to Mr. Ford, he is quite out of the question.' i know all about his past life and i know that he is a confirmed bachelor your confirmed bachelors are a very dangerous race elizabeth said mrs chevenix sententiously they contrive to throw families off their guard by their false pretences and generally end by marrying a beauty or an heiress But I trust you have too much common sense to take up with a man who can barely afford to keep you. By such small doses of worldly wise counsel did Mrs. Chevenix strive to fortify her niece against the peril of Malcolm Ford's influence. Her sharp eye had discovered something more than common kindliness in the curate's bearing towards Elizabeth, something more than a mere spirit of contradiction in the girl's liking for him. there was time enough yet she told herself and the tender sprout of passion might by a little judicious management be nipped in the bud she would not even wait for the coming spring she thought but would carry off elizabeth with her when she went back to town a little before christmas she had intended to spend that social season in a hospitable wiltshire manor house but that visit might be deferred anything was better than to leave her niece exposed to the perilous influence of malcolm Ford. again and again had she made a mental review of the tritons in the matrimonial market or rather of those special tritons who might be brought within the narrow waters of her own drawing-room or could be encountered at will in that wider sea of society to which she had free ingress there was sir rockingham Pendarvis, the rich cornish baronet whom it had been her privilege to meet at the dinner-parties of her own particular set and who might be fairly counted upon for daily tea-drinking and occasional snug little dinners there was mr maltby the great distiller who had lately inherited a business popularly estimated at a hundred thousand a year there was mr miguel zamirez the financier with a lion's share in the public funds of various nations aquiline nosed and olive skinned speaking a peculiar spanish english with a somewhat guttural accent these three were the mightier argosies that sailed upon society's smooth ocean but there were numerous craft of smaller tonnage whereof mrs chevenix kept a record and any one of which would be a prize worth boarding inscrutable are the decrees of the gods while this diplomatic matron was weaving her web for the next london season even planning her little dinners reckoning the expenses of the campaign resolving to do things with a somewhat lavish hand fate brought a nobler prize than any she had dared to dream of winning and landed it without effort of her own at her feet End of chapter 7